bless you, Isaac. You know, I've heard this man preach. He's a good preacher too. I had the privilege. Yeah. <clears throat> I had the, actually, I'll grab that, Isaac, if that's all right with you. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. No, that's fine. Uh, I've, I've had the privilege of uh, hearing Isaac preach on a, th- on a youth a Sunday evening. So we're just so blessed with our youth here at church. And thank you, Isaac, for that. It was wonderful. Oh, well, it's good, to, it's good to be here all together. I'm just loving what the Lord is doing in this season. And thank you for all your encouraging emails about the liminal. And uh, I've had, had the blessing and the privilege of speaking to many of you in person and just so grateful to God that in this season, uh, the Lord is speaking to so many of you. And the liminal kind of gives us some language to process what God's been doing and is doing. And, and also permission, hey? It, isn't it nice to have a permission to spend time just understanding what the Lord's doing in our heart and having an opportunity to respond to that. So it's been really great. Um, I'm not going to spend time looking at the previous um, two weeks. As Jenna said earlier, you can catch up with all of our talks uh, either on our smartphone app or you can get it on our website, thevineyardchurch.co.uk forward slash talks or indeed on YouTube channel uh, and on Facebook. Hey, wherever you want to go, we're there seemingly. Um, So do get a recap. But essentially, we've been looking at this place called the liminal, which essentially is a threshold. It is the place in that doorway where you leave one place and enter the new. And we've been unpacking what God does in that threshold, in that seeming waiting room or liminal space, how God works in our hearts. And we looked at, uh, and it'll be up on the screen as a way of a reminder, Isaiah 48, um, no, not 48, 43, verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And here you see the uh, the prophet Isaiah was speaking to a people, Israel in exile in Babylon, in a very... Uh, large and lengthy liminal space and time. And God was working in his people in that time. And what God essentially is saying is, listen, the, the stuff that happened before is amazing, but forget the former things because I'm about to do something new. As you exit from the liminal, expect the new from me. And I've been saying corporately that as a church, we are in that place. That the past two years that we've all experienced hasn't been an accident God hasn't had to uh, scramble to come up with a plan C, D, E, or F. God has been intentionally working in that place, in us individually, but also us corporately preparing for us to exit the liminal into the new. And so as way of a a roadmap, uh, we're going to end looking at the liminal today. We've got Testimony Sunday next week, and then we're going to shift gears a little in terms of looking what are those new things. And essentially, I'm going to outline a vision for the next decade for the church and sharing what's on my heart and as the leaders as we've met in terms of what God is doing. And as I said at the start, everyone is here for a reason and for a season. You are not here by accident. You are caught up in the most amazing story, which is called Making Christ Known. You are here for a reason and a season to fulfill the Great Commission, to save souls, to make disciples. And as a church, God has got more for us. And so we're going to be looking at that. 
But as I said, we end on the liminal, that place of tension, that place of moving on from what was before to something new. And as a way of a very mini recap, let's look at the five that we looked at over the past two weeks. Number one, God sifts and gathers in the liminal. God sifts and gathers. Number two, he exposes our fears because in the liminal, where we no longer have the security and comfort uh, that we once had, as we leave the known into an unknown, all of a sudden the fears that are there are exposed. Why? In order that God can deal with those root issues. And in order that, number three, it reveals our need for him and our dependence on him. Because when you're stripped of everything, when you're in that liminal space, then there's a reality that we've been created to depend on him, not ourselves. Number four, he therefore draws us to himself. He woos us by his love. And as I said, the revelation of our need for him and dependence on him is an invitation from him. Is an invitation from him. And then lastly, we looked at he then repoints and refocuses us. And it is our response of repentance to say, Lord, we, we move away from that which is not your will and we focus on that which you have called us to. And that's what we looked at thus far. Just some notes on that. It's worth saying that this is not an exhaustive list. God does many other things in the liminal that I'm sure you can, that you know yourself personally. He strengthens us. He gives us courage. He creates character and perseverance, all of these things. It's worth saying as well that while I'm presenting it in a sequence, it doesn't have to be in this sequence. So don't go, wait a minute, whoa, I'm out of sequence. I'm on point four. I should have been at point one, two, and three. It's okay. God operates in different ways. This is not an exercise of putting God in a box. This is an exercise of giving us some language and understanding of how God works so that we can say, wow, you know what? Yeah, I am there and I'm at that point. All right, then, let's look at the next one in our list, number six. But before I want to do that, I want to introduce it by doing so with this book. Now, this book is a very old book. You can probably tell by how it looks. My grandfather, or my, my, my dad's father, was a pastor, and he had a ton of books, and he passed away 12 years, 12 years ago. At the time, Steph and I were in Australia, but when we came back, there was a box of all these old books that no one had taken. And I said, I'll have them. So I have a ton of my grandfather's books. <clears throat> and this is one of them. And actually, I've only recently, I've been reading this at night. And it is entitled, Twice Born Men. It is true conversion records of 100 well-known men in all ranks of life. You can tell already by the word rank that this is a very old book. <laughs> This traces 100 men from 530 AD all the way through to present time, the early 19th, uh, 20th century. And it is a fascinating read. And they're just mini biographies. And by the way, can I just encourage you, biographies of great Christian men and women are an amazing thing to read. It gives you faith, it encourages you. Um, but I want to read to you the one that I have just been stuck on all week that has really spoke to me. And it's entitled The Pioneer of Burma. And it goes like this, Adoniram Judson, what a name, Adoniram Judson, the renowned missionary to India, Burma, has an interesting story. At the age of 16, he formed an intimacy with a young man, Edward, 
a free thinker, engaged in amusements of questionable kind. You'll see the kind of language this old book uses. And before deciding on his future course in life, Judson left home with the intention of making a tour through some of the northern states of his native land. Before setting out, he had told his father of his non-Christian sentiments and had been severely condemned by him. His father's arguments he could repel, but his mother's tears and warnings, appealing to a nature, though proud, still tender and susceptible, made an impression which it was impossible to shake off. I am in no danger, he thought to himself. I am only seeing the world, the dark side of it, and the bright And I have too much self-respect to do anything mean or vicious. Happily for Judson, at this critical period, he stopped at a country inn. The landlord mentioned as he, it says it lighted him to the room, showed him to the room, that he had been obliged to place him next door to a young man who was exceedingly ill, probably in a dying state but he hoped that it would occasion him no uneasiness. Judson assured him that beyond pity for the poor sick man, he should have no feeling whatever, and that now, having heard of the circumstances, his pity would not, of course, be increased by the nearness of this object. But it was nevertheless a very restless night. Don't worry, I'm not reading the whole book, just letting you know. (laughs) Just got a little page left, it's fine. (laughs) Sounds came from the sick chamber, sometimes the movements of the watchers, sometimes the groans of the sufferer, but it was not these which disturbed him. He thought of what the landlord had said. The stranger was probably in a dying state. Was he prepared? Alone and in the dead of night, he felt it a blush of shame steal over him at the question, for it proved the shallowness of his philosophy. (laughs) What would the clear-minded, intellectual Edward say to such weakness? But still his thoughts would revert to the sick man. Was he a Christian, calm and strong in the hope of a glorious immortality, or was he shuddering upon the brink of a dark, unknown future? Perhaps he was a free thinker, thought Judson, educated by Christian parents and prayed over by a Christian mother. The landlord had described him as a young man and in imagination he was forced to place himself upon the dying bed, though he strove with all his might against it. As soon as he had risen, he went in search of the landlord and inquired for his fellow lodger. He is dead, was the reply. Dead? Yes, he is gone, poor fellow. Do you know who he was? Oh, yes. It was a young man from Providence College, a very fine fellow. His name was Edward. Judson was completely stunned. It was his atheist friend, Edward. After hours had passed, he knew not how, he attempted to pursue his journey But one single thought occupied his mind and the words dead, lost, lost were continually ringing in his ears. He knew the religion of the Bible to be true. He felt its truth and he was in despair. 
In this state of mind, he resolved to abandon his scheme of traveling and at once turned his horse's head towards Plymouth. From that hour, his life, outwardly and inwardly, became changed. All his plans for the future were reversed. The dreams of literary distinction were renounced. And the one great question which he put to himself now was this, how shall I so order my future as best to please God? The tale of his hardships, shipwrecks, imprisonments, and persecutions would make angels weep. Yet he murmured not. He translated the whole Bible into Burmese and was buried at sea in 1850. Wow, what a story, eh? The country in the liminal space that he entered, leaving a different man than when he had done so. And what I love about this story and what so struck me is that it does such a good job of showing two key important things that God does in the liminal. The first thing is this that we looked at last week, repentance. It says here that he got his horse and he turned his head into the other direction. That is a perfect picture of what repentance looks like. That is what God enables in us by his grace that he repoints and refocuses us on the new. And for some of us, you see, we are in that place, that place seemingly like we have an internal battle that we know God is causing us to change direction. But then what's great about this story is that it comes to what is now number six for us as we look at what God does in the liminal space It is this, he says, how shall I order my future as best to please God? And that is number six, we surrender. We surrender. You know, when we think of surrender, we often think about a battle scenario, don't we? Where we surrender to the enemy or the opposition. But you see, the surrender we're talking about here is not that type of surrender. It's relinquishing our perceived control to the authority over us. It is actually recognizing that we say yes to him and we live our lives for him. That is what surrender means in this context. And in some ways, it is a battle, isn't it? We've all been at that place where we feel led to surrender, but it's a battle between our desires and what we want to do and the the desires of the flesh, those sinful things And yet we recognize that we need to lay it all down. And there comes a point in our Christian walk, not just once, but many times, where we come to a liminal and God, by his grace, affords us the opportunity to declare our surrender and say, I want to live my life just for you, God. I want to live my life just for you, God. But why is there this willingness? Where does this willingness come from? because of the overtures of love that we experience, the wooing, the invitation to draw closer to him, because of the reality that he is for us and not against us, because of the understanding that he created us and we are his and we've been created to worship him, because of that understanding, there in us births a willingness to give it all for him. And what we find, you see, is when we get to that place of surrender, we find that it opens up a doorway 
into something brand new. Judson wouldn't have done the amazing escapades. He thought he was going on an adventure and a journey. Boy, God had something even better for him. I mean, what a life that he led. Why? Because he made a choice to exit the liminal through surrender. He made a choice to walk into the new through the declaration of surrender. And I want to say to you guys, if you're serious on on your walk with Jesus, then you will get to a point where you are afforded the opportunity to declare your surrender to him. And rather than it being a place where you are domineered, it is a place where you are set free into the new. Anyone up for that? I want to share you a story. <clears throat> You'll see the point eventually, but it's about Steph and I. <clears throat> you don't mind me sharing this, do you? You don't even know what I'm going to share. <clears throat> I did briefly mention it to you yesterday, didn't I? So Steph and I have been married for 18 years. And it was a bit of a whirlwind romance, wouldn't you say? Um, after two weeks of knowing Steph, I asked her out. After a week, therefore, I, I told her I loved her. High-risk strategy, but it paid off. <laughs> Turns out she loved me too. I remember the night. We were going bowling with some friends, weren't we, my love? <clears throat> now, two weeks after that, I was going to Australia for my brother's wedding. He was marrying an Aussie girl. So we'd only been dating for four weeks by this point. I got to Australia... I thought, you know what, I'm going to marry her. And to be fair, we had already talked about this, didn't we? So I did the right thing. I called Steph's parents from Australia. Hello, this is Mark here. I know you've only met me once, maybe twice. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, marry your daughter. Is that all right? Sure, lovely. We'd love to get rid of her. I mean, <clears throat> we'd love to have you as part of our family. So I thought, right, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get the ring in Australia. So I went to Elizabeth Street in Sydney after that, my brother's wedding. And I walked in there and they got some diamonds out and I picked a diamond. FYI, you know, you get the certificate for the diamonds and it shows you when the diamond was mined. It was amazing to find that it was mined the same week that Steph and I had met. That was kind of cool. I thought, oh, yeah, this is it. So I said, right, I've got to go to, uh, the, I went up north, uh, uh, I don't know, with some friends for a holiday in Australia. My brother got married at that point. So I'll come back and get the ring. So I came back after it, got the ring. Now, my friend stayed in Australia for, for more of a holiday, and I flew back on my own, right? So I'm in the airplane holding this ring. Boy, I was nervous. It's like, oh, is the ring still there? I don't want to lose this ring. <clears throat> I'd spent all my savings thus far type of scenario, you know? Anyway, so... I thought, well, this is the plan. I'm going to get to the airport and I'm going to do it right there in arrivals. Oh, yes. So with the plane lands and I'm really rather nervous and <clears throat> I enter the liminal. We talked about the airport being a liminal, didn't we? You enter a liminal from one place and you exit to a different place. Well, this was properly a liminal for me. I entered a single man. I was about to leave the airport and engage man. So anyway, I'm about to exit I get the bags, and all of a sudden, I am greeted with a sign. Anything to declare? Question mark. Hmm. <gasps> mm, this ring is expensive. I have to pay VAT on it. It's a ring. It's small. They will not know that I have a ring. But no, being the good guy that I am, and not wanting my wife-to-be to wear a ring for the rest of her life that was fraudulent... 
I decided the only right thing to do was to declare it. So I went to declare it. <clears throat> it took forever. Why are you declaring this ring, sir? Well, I have to pay VAT. Well, you're right. Just want you to check. And went through some forms. Anyway, by this point, everyone else had left. Poor Steph. I mean, you were wondering where I was. You were pretty nervous. Where's this guy that we've been... Anyway, so eventually I come out. And it was a scene from Love Actually. You know what I'm talking about. The start of the movie. Steph runs towards me. Oh, darling. And at that moment, I get on my knee. Pop open the ring. Say, will you marry me? And you said, yes, thank God. So there you go. That was eight weeks of dating. Thank you. There is a point to this story, and maybe you might have picked up on it. But you see, in order for me to be committed to Steph and to demonstrate my love for her, I had to declare the ring. And you see, when you get to the exit point of the liminal, if you want to go deeper with Jesus and you want to be wedded to him in a deeper way, you have to declare your surrender to him. The good news is it won't cost you like it cost me. No VAT on that declaration. But joking aside, guys, some of you might start walking around the liminal for a while until God, until you say, I surrender. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. You've got the baggage, you know, you've got it on your thing and you're there and you're like, have I got anything to declare? And you know what God's asking. And there's a battle inside. I want to encourage you, declare. Because I left that airport, an engaged man, and we've been happily married for 18 years. I love you more now than I did when I met you. And that's the, thank you. And uh, that is the opportunity for each one of us with Jesus, guys. There is fruit that comes from surrender. And you know what else happens in surrender? We take off the heavy burden that we've been carrying, fashioned by our own desires for affirmation and significance and worth. And we take it off. And in that divine exchange, God gives us the yoke of Jesus, which is light and easy. And we feel a release and a love and a peace which we've never felt. And so that is our number six on the list. We surrender. But then we move on to number seven. Who's up for number seven? By the way, I'm going to do eight. So you're not going to be here for long. Number seven. Actually, you know what? What time is it? Before I do that, you know what I'd like to do just to end on the surrender piece is just look at our Lord Jesus and the place in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just such a beautiful moment. Why don't we just turn together to Matthew 26, verse 39. It will be on the screen. If you're at home, it will be on your uh, whatever device you're looking at. Um, and we know the story. Jesus is about to be crucified. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't he? And what does he say? I'm just going to read this verse. And going a little further, he fell on his face, this is Jesus, and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. A declaration of surrender, even from our very Lord and Saviour. You see, he models so perfectly for us the place that we will get to not as I will, but as yours. You know, Jesus says, John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. You see, when we say we love Jesus, there is an action that comes with that love. It's not some fluffy feeling love, and we might feel that about Jesus, but that's not the love we're talking about here. It's a love of commitment, 
a love of dedication. And I just so love, isn't it amazing that also Jesus gave us permission to see the battle that we all feel? If it be so, would you let this cup pass but yet? And for some of us, as we let go, as we surrender, I want to give you permission. Why? Because Jesus gives it to us to be honest and real with God and say, this is really hard, Lord. This is really difficult, but nevertheless. And maybe for some of you, that is your declaration this week. And then what happens after surrender, we move to our seventh point, which is this. We pick up our cross. You know, we often, when we talk about the gospel, what is the gospel? It's the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus died on the cross for us, right? In order that we may have new life, that he bore the sins on his shoulders in order that we are clothed with his righteousness. What an amazing divine exchange. But it's rarely said, is it not, that actually walking with Jesus is also about us picking up our own cross. What? No way, yeah. Jesus said this, Matthew 16, 24 to 25, Then he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, oftentimes when we come to surrender, and I'm sharing my personal journey here, and I know many others, is that we we, we pass into a bit of a season of death where... Because we've surrendered those things that we've held so tightly, it's as if they die and fall away. And sometimes we can feel desperate. Sometimes we can feel pain and loss. We give up desires that we had that we knew deep down weren't God-given desires. We give up a habitual sin that we knew is just not right and it's hurt because the flesh is crying out saying, satisfy me, satisfy me, satisfy me. And there is a season sometimes of loss. And there is that feeling. You know, Jesus said in John 12, 24, Truly I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The paradox, seeming paradox of the kingdom of God is this. When you die to self, you are alive in Christ anew. When we talk about exiting the liminal, these are the final points as we exit the liminal. That as we go through those gates into the new, we leave behind those things that are not right. And in that, we die to those things. That is baptism, isn't it? That's why we get baptised, is that symbolic act of dying with Christ under the waters of baptism and coming up anew and in Christ Jesus. And sometimes when we come up, what happens is Jesus gives us back those desires, but all polished and ready for us. Why? Because our hearts are changed. And you know what the enemy will do when you come up to the place of surrender and dying to yourself is like, well, God's going to make you one boring person. Anyone ever heard that from the enemy? You're going to have a life of service, of pain, of discomfort, of scorn. But the opposite is true. Judson went from a life of seeking himself on a travels to an amazing adventure that I bet he couldn't even thought of himself. And that is the promise of God for us, that in the place of death, in the place of surrender, complete surrender, 
And as we allow those things to die, new life springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I am, this series of liminal is a really deep word because it is a place of new birth. But in order to walk in new birth, we need to walk in that death and pick up our cross. If you're saying yes to Jesus, then we need to be real and say that picking up our cross is part of our journey. But then that leads us on to our eighth point. And I'm going to end on a happy note. Because as we set forth through those doors, we are filled with hope. Where we entered, as we saw through a sifting and gathering, and we entered the doors in fear, we exit the door in hope anew. And if we look back, we say, wow, as the psalmist did, Surely goodness and mercy has followed me. See, after the dark night of the soul through that death process that I talked about, that new life springs forth. You know, it says in uh, Proverbs 13 verse 2 that hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. I said last week the liminal is a place of healing. And I believe that for many of you, you are in a season where God is going to restore hope in your hearts. That he's going to restore hope of those dreams that you laid down because you thought God had abandoned you and forgotten you. God is going to restore hopes where fear has told you you'll never be able to achieve it. God is going to restore hopes where your perceived failure of the past has been dictating how you see yourself in the future. And God has scrubbed that through the liminal space. See, health, hope brings health to our bodies. And it gives us that spring in our step. And here's the thing. It gives us the lens to perceive what's springing forth in this season. I'd like to invite the band up. You see, before the morning comes, before we find that the tomb is empty and the grave clothes are left, we experience a dark night. Some of you are in that place now. Maybe you've been on it in it for a while. But I want to encourage you and say, the morning is coming. It says in Ecclesiastes that there is a time and season for all things, a time for laughing, a time for weeping. A time for sowing, a time for reaping. Our God is intimately involved in every second and millisecond and nanosecond of our lives. You have not been forgotten. God has a plan and a purpose for you. And new hope will spring forth. Let us know.